He says, look at your spiritual gift as an opportunity to love Jesus Christ and to love His body. And then he will talk about one that that, that especially helps build up the church, and it's this idea of prophesying. And it's an over uh, oversimplistic definition, but I'm just going to summarize prophecy uh, here and keep it simple and just say very simply, it's declaring the message of God, the truth of God, is what it is to one another. And then in verses 2 and 3, he, he describes one of the issues that's coming up in Corinth is that they're placing a particular gift, the gift of speaking in tongues, as one that they are obsessed with and see the gift of tongues as, as, as the preeminent gift. And Paul says, no, again, it's love. And prophesying actually uh, uh, displays the building up of the church better than the gift of tongues does. Though he doesn't, uh, in this passage, rule out tongues, he says very clearly uh, where it needs to be put in its place in verses 2 and 3. Uh, he shows some of the limitations of tongues in verse 2. But in verse 3, he reminds the church that he that proclaims the message of God speaks the truth of God to one another, speaks to men to edification and exhortation and comfort. And tongues is useless unless there's an interpreter to explain what the tongue means. Because the whole point of it is to be is to understand God's truth. And then verses 4 through 6, he comes up with this theme again that's throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's this, that edifying the body is more important than only building yourself up. Your own personal experience is nice, but it's not the thing that ultimately matters. And edifying and building up the body is more important than only only building yourself up. So the body is more important than any, any of us one individuals. You realize that all of us are indispensable. God uses us, but... We could be gone tomorrow and God's church will still go on, including the person standing up here in this pulpit. Not one of us is indispensable. And the whole line of saints from, 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 from Adam till now testifies to the truth of that, doesn't it? Elijah had to train his replacement, Elisha. Elijah did great things, great prophet of Israel. But guess what? God took him. He was gone. He wasn't indispensable. And, and edifying the body is more important than only building yourself up. Work for God's kingdom, not your kingdom. And don't use the gifts that God gives you to build your kingdom. Use them as, to, as good stewards to, to work in His vineyard. And so he says in verse 4, He that prophesies edifies or builds up the church. He says, I, I want you to prophesy greater as he that speaks the message of God. Prophesies than he that speaks the tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying, building up. And so, Paul makes it very clear that it's the Word of God that's the important thing. And prophesying is an important gift because it's declaring the message, the truth of the Word of God. And then in verses 6-12, through 12, we looked at the second sermon in 1 Corinthians 14. And saw that because God's truth powerfully creates, God throughout the Word of God, you'll see this traced out from Genesis to Revelation, it's His Word that creates. It's His Word that builds. It's His Word that He stands on from creation to His promise to Abraham, to His church in Acts chapter 2. It is His Word that builds. And because God's Word, God's God's truth powerfully creates, God expects His truth then to be communicated clearly. And that's kind of an obvious thing, isn't it? Eight times in verses 6 through 12, you're going to see the word understand. 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 Because hearing comes 
Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But what good is it if we don't understand the word of God, right? It's not some magical thing. We must have the word of God be understood by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, but also by God's people explaining and proclaiming the message of God. Matthew 13.23 talks about seed that, that fell and, and, it, and it began to grow roots, but it was not understood. And so therefore, it didn't produce fruit. Why do we need God's truth to be understood and communicated clearly? Because God's truth needs to be clear in our minds so that it can be obeyed. So God is glorified. And we saw um, uh, last time uh, we were in 1 Corinthians that um, uh, it's a fundamental fact of the nature of God to be understood. Our God is a speaking and a teaching God. We're introduced to Him speaking in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we see it in Genesis chapter 2. We're told in John 17 that Jesus existed with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All existed together and, and, and they loved each other. You, there was communication that's involved. For all eternity, our God is a communicating God. And because He is a missionary God who loves the world and He has delegated the responsibility of His people in Matthew twenty-eight twenty to make sure the message of Jesus goes out to all the nations... He has delegated that responsibility to put the Word of God into the understanding of the common Word of mankind. That's a fundamental fact of the nature of God. Um, uh, 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 Islam says that you must understand Scriptures in one language, Arabic. Because their God is not a missionary God. He's a God who forces you to submit, but He is not a God who loves the world, who's a God of love. Our God... And through the event of Pentecost, that reversed some of the curse of Babel, didn't it? You think Babel in in Genesis chapter 11, where all the nations were confused, and then you see in Acts chapter 2, you see that people are hearing the Word of God in their own language. It gathered them together. made God's Word known in many languages. That's because that's the Great Commission. It calls Jesus' disciple, declares message to all nations of the world. So we need to make sure that the truth of God is clear in the heart language of the nations. So unlike Islam, Christianity sees God's truth, God's word as translatable into the common tongue. You'll see when you read about people who translated the scriptures into English, you'll hear this common theme of the common tongue, the language of the plowboy. Uh, Tyndale uh, spoke particularly. So Christianity sees God's word as translatable. And in order for the church to carry out its mission, translation is mandatory. It's mandatory for the church so the world hears the truth of God's Word into the common tongue, into the heart language, into uh, the vernacular of the people. That's why God wrote the New Testament and not a high society Greek called Attic Greek of the elites, but He wrote it in Koine Greek, which was the common Greek. Koine actually means common. The common Greek of, the, of, of, of that day. Tyndale who we received 90%, I believe, of the King James Version is, is Tyndale's uh, translation, said this, I perceived by experience how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the Scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text. He wanted a text that was comprehensible to the masses of England. And what does that tell us about our God? Because he wants in chapter 14, verses 6 through 12, he makes it clear that God's truth needs to be communicated clearly. What does that tell us about the heart of God? Well, it tells us that we have a God who loves. 
who, as I, as I said, always existed as a speaking, creating God, and he desires to share himself and his truth, and he intends it to be done so clearly. He is God with us. God was translated to us in the person of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. Uh, and because God's truth powerfully creates, He expects His truth to be communicated clearly. We saw that up through verse 12. And then in verses 13 through 19, we see that because God's truth powerfully creates, God expects His truth to not be hoarded. It's, not, it's one thing to communicate it clearly. It's another thing to make sure that that's getting multiplied. And so God expects His truth to be multiplied freely, stewarded. In verses 13 through 19, He talks about the assembly of the church and, and, and blessing one another in verse 6 and being able to, to build up other people and, and, and use this, this gift of prophecy, proclaiming the message of God, to speaking the words of God, the truths of God to one another in love so that it builds up the church so that one can say Amen to the truth. Agree with the truth. And verses 13 through 19. So when we gather together, we gather to build up the church. That's why we're here. And so the conversations after we're done this morning with our, with our, with the form, formality, the formal, uh, part of the service, uh, uh, how are you going to practice that? When you're eating lunch around your, around your lunch table here, Sunday lunch, and maybe you have some folks over here after the service, and, and, you, and how are you going to build one another up from the truth of God's Word? See, we're not spectators watching an athletic event. We're fellow runners all in a race. We're stonemasons building a temple. And Jesus has laid the foundation. We build on that foundation. And the church doesn't exist ultimately for me, although we certainly benefit from one another. Speaking in our lives, but we need to think of ourselves as, do we exist for the church? Are we servants of Jesus? And so that leads us to verse 20. Here, verses 20 through 25, where he's going to build on that very theme, specifically in verses 13 through 19 of the clarity, because he's going to show that the clarity of God's truth does not only build up the saints, God can use the clarity of His truth to affect even the unbeliever. And so imagine here, he, he portrays a scenario here, and again corrects tongues because it was not clear and it was not building up the church in the way that it should have been practiced. And he says, again, though that, that the uh, clear proclamation, the clear speaking to one another of the truth of God, the message of God, can cause even an unbeliever, God can use that to say, wow, God's presence is here. God's presence is here. And so this morning, the message is entitled, That God is Truly Among You. And so if we had an unbelievers among us this morning, and perhaps we do because we don't know everybody's heart here this morning, but will they, would they be able to say, after hearing certainly the Word of God from, 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 from the pulpit this morning, but also in the conversations and observing your lives and seeing the speaking of the truth of God to one another, and, and, the, and, and you're, and you're uh, receiving that truth and, and, and using the truth of God to change, would they be able to say, truly God is among us? What a goal, right? This is the expectation of Scripture. That Word comes into our hearts and, it, it, and we're like a cistern that it's stored in and then it overflows into others. 
You see, we don't just pursue ministry. Ministry happens because we're full of God. Some of us are so empty that we don't want to do ministry. A ministry happens because we're full of God. And we're full of God when we love the Master, we acknowledge the ministry. The ministry is the overflow of a relationship with the Master. And our relationship with the Master is through the book. So he says this in verse 20 through 25, and his point is to lay out very clearly in their minds. They have said they're mature. We see that in chapter 3. They have bragged about their maturity, and they actually look at Paul as somebody who's, well, Paul, you're a little pedantic here, a little infantile here. Where We've arrived. You see that in chapters 1 through 3. And Paul says, no, you're not mature. And he says, here's what it is to be mature. And he specifically applies it to those gifts of tongues, but there's principles here for all of us today. So he says in verse 20, Brethren, be not children in understanding, however in malice or evil be you children, but in understanding be men. Here's what he's saying. He's clearly saying that maturity means thinking through the whole counsel of God. Notice he says, stop being children in understanding. In other words, there is a part of your immaturity, your spiritual growth, that is connected with your understanding of the Word of God. Not because in 1 Corinthians 8, just so you have knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but an understanding is what it means so that then you're able to apply it. Knowledge, understanding, application here. And so Paul is saying, brethren, he says, stop being children. You're acting like babies. You have a little... Small, fragmented understanding. He says, in evil things, be like children, be infants, be innocent. But in understanding, he says, be men. Now, understanding what? Well, he's specifically talking about tongues here. And they, again, have elevated tongues to, uh, to be this, uh, really, it's, it's an idol in their church. It's an idol. It's something that they've made way too important. And it's out of balance. And he says, you, here's how you apply this maturity here of understanding where tongues fits in God's Word. And he's going to explain that in verses 20 through 22. So he uses this imagery. He says, stop being like children in your thinking and be as innocent as babies in your behavior. The problem was, they were being like infants, children really, in their thinking and their understanding. They thought they knew what... Um, uh, everything, but that became revealed to show that no, they did not. And in actuality, um, and malice and evil, they should have been children, they should have been infants, and they weren't. They weren't using their minds. Their minds were unfruitful, as it says in chapter 14, verse 14. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. And they were unfruitful. They, they were not thinking through the right things, the biblical things, the things out of the revelation of God that they received. And so in their understanding, they were children rather than men, and they should have been mature, and their minds should have grasped the truth. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, a little infant... Really has very, I would think. I haven't been a long time since I've been an infant, and I don't remember. But a little infant has no evil thoughts. I mean, yeah, an infant's a sinner. I understand that. But they don't have the same kind of evil thoughts, uh, the same degree of evil thoughts that we. I mean, they might be mad because they're not getting their milk, right? 
individuals not giving their milk. But there, there's an innocence, isn't there? A certain sense of innocence to infants here. Uh, there's, there's not a vindictiveness, a, a malice that you see uh, as, as they grow older. Uh, an infant uh, 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 has, has a gentleness, a tenderness, uh, except some infants I've had in my family. But for the most part, that's how they are, right? Um, and Paul's saying, why don't you treat each other like that? Why don't you be like little infants when it comes the way you act toward each other and, and, that, and that sort of innocence here and be mature in your thinking instead of being infants in your thinking, mature in your evil. Stop being children. Stop treating people wrong as selfish and pride. Think like adults. And so he says, you need understanding here. You need to understand the whole counsel of God. Not fragments and not, not bits of pieces, pieces. Not for evil and pride and selfishness and to promote yourself and your own agenda. But see the big picture is what Paul is saying. And see the whole counsel of God and where things fit. Now let me show you what happens here. Because he illustrates this. Verse 21. He says, In the law it is written. The law is just a code word for the Old Testament. And he's going to quote from Isaiah. With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Paul says, on the basis of this, and he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, and I'll explain here in a minute. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Now, that verse 21, the law there, Referring to the Old Testament, and he's referring actually to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. What I'd like you to do is turn to Isaiah chapter 28 for a couple minutes here to know the context of what Paul's quoting from. He quotes Isaiah 28, 11 freely, and then throws in the end of verse 12 here. And then after he quotes Isaiah 28, he then applies it. He says, therefore, wherefore, in verse 22. He says, if that was true then, in Isaiah 28, if that was the use in the time of Isaiah, tongues are a sign not to those that believe, but to them that believe not. So he draws a conclusion from the Old Testament. <clears throat> so Isaiah chapter 28. Now, a little, little background here in Isaiah 28. Um, we find ourselves in Israel, and God is warning Israel that they're going to receive some persecution. They're going to receive some judgment. It's more than persecution. Judgment by a foreign enemy for their um, uh, 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 rejection of God's law. So we're in the southern kingdom of Judah. The, the empire of Israel is split into ten tribes and two tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah is the two tribes, and it's the reign of King Hezekiah. The date would be approximately 700 years before Jesus Christ comes. Okay? And 15 years earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, had been taken and destroyed by the Assyrians because of their unbelief in turning away from God in 722 B.C. And now it's 705 B.C. This way, as you're looking at it here. And the southern kingdom is picking up on the same trends of disobedience that the northern kingdom was. So God speaks to them through the prophet Isaiah and He warns them that the same thing that happened in the northern kingdom is going to happen to the southern kingdom because of their unbelief and apostasy. They're not immune from it. 
And that's the message of the first 15 verses of Isaiah chapter 28. It's a warning from the prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. They're going to see the same kind of judgment the north came. And it will be the Assyrians or the babbling Babylonians, if you will, who are going to come in judgment against them. So Isaiah approaches the problem and he goes to the leaders of Israel, the spiritual leaders of Israel in verse 7. And look how he finds them. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priests of the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. Yeah, ew. He goes to the spiritual leaders of Israel and finds them drunk. I mean, drunk passed out. Drunk vomiting. Very explicit, isn't it? He doesn't mince words here. They are failing to function, fulfill their function as spiritual leaders because they're drunk. They have no judgment, no vision. It's ugly in verse 8. And they mock Him, they scorn Him, they chide Him, they deride Him. In verse 9 He says, Whom shall He teach knowledge? And whom shall He make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast." For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips in another tongue he will speak to this people. They're babies. They're, they're still drinking milk. Why? He has to go precept and precept, line upon line. And, 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 and they're saying, they're saying uh, these spiritual leaders are saying, he must think we're babies. He keeps repeating the same simple stuff over and over. They mock him because they haven't obeyed what was simple. And they mock him. They don't appreciate his attitude. And they sneer at him and call his teaching childish. Why does he got to repeat this? Does he think we're babies? But they don't hear it. They don't ever hear it. So in verse 11, he says, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to his people. Think about that. He says, he says um, uh, you're, you're not going to hear this simple, repealed, repeated childish message. The message that you're calling childish from Isaiah? You know what message you're going to hear? You're going to hear a message from a language you don't understand. You know what he's referring to? He's referring to the Babylonians who are going to come and encompass their city. And they're going to take them out of the land and destroy them and slaughter them and burn them through Nebuchadnezzar. And when they hear that language of the Babylonians that they could understand, you know what they're going to recognize? That the judgment of God has fallen. And that happens in 586 B.C. And because of their unbelief and apostasy, God brings a judgment. That wasn't the only time they had been warned. This is a fulfilled promise of God back in Deuteronomy that said in Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, 28, 49, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. A strange language that Israel would hear all around them would mean judgment. Israel. And so God tells them in the 8th century, Isaiah, God warns them when they hear a strange language, it's going to be judgment. Jeremiah said, Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you know not. Neither understand you what they say. Jeremiah 5.15 There's going to be a sign of God's judgment, and that sign was going to be that they would hear a language that was not their language. 
Now when Paul quotes that, you can go back to um, 1 Corinthians 14. Paul quotes that verse. Isaiah 28, 11, and then the end of verse 12. He's saying, it's like Isaiah said it, it's like Moses said it, it's like Jeremiah said it. These languages are a sign to the unbeliever that God's going to act in judgment. That's what he's saying. In 70 AD, God destroyed Israel's temple. And that came to a full fruition there. Judgment of God really physically, clearly seen here. But tongues was something that was a sign to those who didn't believe, Paul says. So Jesus here is saying to the church in Corinth, we look at the story of Acts in Acts 2, when the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem, and God's Spirit comes upon them, and they're speaking tongues to those who are gathered in Jerusalem, the Jews, for the Feast of Pentecost. new elements here of the new covenant here we need to see that that first of all was a sign of cursing to the Jews it said there's something here God is not working primarily through the nation of Israel here you have rejected the word of God okay now you're hearing all these languages here that should be a sign to you now, you'll find in, in Acts over and over and over again that Paul goes to the synagogue and he implores them to repent, doesn't he? But there's a shift that happens, doesn't it? And God has set Israel aside for a time and he has focused on the Gentiles. I still believe the Gospels to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I see that clearly as the pattern of the apostles in the book of Acts and also Romans 16. But what he's saying is the emphasis here is on the Gentile ministry. That was Paul's ministry here. And there will be a number of the Gentiles that are gathered in because Romans 9 through 11 says because of the unbelief of Israel. But there will be one day a future salvation of all Israel, Paul says in Romans 11. That's a whole other topic here. But what he's saying here is to link here the, and reinforce tongues was a reinforcement of the Jewish nation that God was going to judge. It's a sign of cursing. But I also want you to know that it's a sign of blessing as well. I'm going to try to bring all this together. It's a sign of blessing because there is a residual effect of, of, of blessing because of the curse that was assigned to Israel. And it's this. Tongues at Pentecost were also saying, okay, Israel, you had your chance with Jesus as king. Okay? And one day you're going to look upon him whom you pierced. But it's also saying to the Gentile, God's not working through a nation in this age. God's going through the world to build his church of all nations. A kingdom of priests. And so the very fact that in Pentecost and Acts 2, they spoke in all those languages, God saying, I'm going to speak in the world's languages. A sign of judgment to Israel set aside for a time. But I'm going to build that mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, the church. And so there's a residual effect to us. Paul says in Romans 11, the fall of them became the riches of us in the world as Gentiles. We become beneficiaries. 
And Paul warns Gentiles to not fall into the same trap and think that we're entitled. He says that as well. So God's New Testament apostles and God's New Testament prophets burst out in Acts 2 declaring the wonderful works of God in every language. And then Peter gives the message of the gospel. And then, yes, Jews do get saved in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So it's a sign of a curse that if you're going to continue in your way, here it is. But it's also the invitation to respond to God's gospel and His blessing. It's also a sign of authority. Who are the messengers that preached this, this gospel of Jesus Christ? Who, who, who spoke of the tongues? Who were the men of God who spoke of the blessing that come all nations? They were the prophets and, and the apostles. They validated God's message here as a sign to the Jewish mind that this is true. And God gives them the ability to speak these languages. So it's so what Paul's saying here, as I'm tying it back to 1 Corinthians 14, is that they were missing the point of tongues. They needed to understand the whole counsel of God and where that fit in it. They had elevated it to a point beyond where it needed to be. They were making the practice the central focus and missing God's point and seeing where it fit in the big picture. And we, we might say, boy, that was dumb, right? But we do that, don't we? We do that. We can even take good things and make them, put them in the wrong place and make them into idols. And idols are something we make bigger than it's supposed to be. Uh, so many times we can take even a gift from God, something that's not even wrong, and forget its whole purpose and twist it into something different than God's purpose and His design and violate His purpose. Churches can do this and individual Christians can do this. We do it all the time. We can do something that's simply a tool to use to bring to God's glory and we make it an ultimate thing. Even an obsession instead of finding where it fits in its place. And we can do this. Um, one example of how churches can do this is we can elevate forms over function. What's a form and what's a function? Well, function is something that's an integral part of the life of the church, corporate prayer, right? Uh, discipleship, evangelism, ministries, the teaching of the Word of God, the Lord's Supper, songs, etc. Forms are there different ways that those functions could be practiced in different cultures and settings throughout history. These occur as you look through church history and traditions and trends. Now, all the functions are firm and should be practiced. So the way they practice have a degree of flexibility and freedom in the scope of the Bible. As you can see in history and cultures for 2,000 years, functions remain the same, forms adjust within reason, and the scope of Scripture as to what gets the function done. Let me give you an example here. There are many different ways and different settings to practice corporate prayer in addition to a 7 p.m. prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, right? The function is corporate prayer. Our form here is to have on Wednesday night a time of prayer together. But there's very different ways we can make that happen as well. Uh, very different ways that the, the Word of God can be taught, right? We can have large groups like what's happening now, uh, this morning. Or we could have small groups in classrooms. Or we could have small groups in living rooms or around the, the dinner table, right? The function of teaching the Word of God stays the same, but there's some different forms that can occur. We can also do this in our own personal lives as Christians. Sometimes we can make an experience that we had... Or something, we've a conclusion that we've come to that isn't clear in Scripture, be the standard for everyone else and elevate it. Or something we have a strong opinion on besides what the Bible says. Be how we think everyone else needs to think or practice. And 
you'll find yourself, and I find myself as I get older, becoming more rigid in these things and less flexible. But by God's Spirit and God's grace, I need to have a heart of love and be flexible. Or we can take even a good thing like a family, or our children, or a job, or a hobby, and make them into the reason we exist, and let those things drive us instead of God's Word and where those things are supposed to fit in that. And so that's why we need to understand, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, what the will of the Lord is. That's why we need to redeem the time because the days are evil. That's why we need to understand the whole counsel of God and where things fit into His plans like the Corinthians needed to. That's part of maturity. And secondly, there's two points, so don't panic. Maturity means thinking through how God can be most glorified by building up the church. He says this, If therefore the whole church become together in one place and all speak with tongues. He imagines this hypothetical scenario where the church is together and you come in and everyone's speaking in tongues. Which would be like the logical conclusion of what they wanted, right? Because tongues are so important. He says this, And there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, either new believers or an unbeliever. And they just, they're observing what's going on in the gathering here, the assembly. And they hear all this stuff going on in different languages and gibberish or whatever it was. Will they not say that you are mad? I'm not talking about being angry. It's talking about, you're nuts. You're crazy. How, how does that communicate the message of God, Paul says? But... If all prophesy, speaking the message of God, the truths of God to one another, sharing the truths of God amongst one another in the assembly, and there comes an observer, an unbeliever, perhaps the unsaved husband of a woman in the, in the assembly, or perhaps the unsaved uh, 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 wife or someone from work, and, and he's, he's observing. This is strange to him, but he's, he's come in. What's his conclusion going to be? Versus... Everybody speaking in tongues or people speaking to one another the clearly communicated truths of God's message. Paul says there's potential for life change in his life because of his observation. Look what he says. But if all prophesy and there come in one that believes not or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And by the way, of all means the messages, the speaking, not the people, it's not... Um, judged by the people but the word of God that's being spoken and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest and so falling down on his face he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth you know what's wrong with the Corinthians they hadn't connected their gift with how God's building his church it was all about them and Paul says look at it this way if everybody did what everybody wants to do this is what would happen. The world very rightly would say, you guys are nuts. A pulse because you're not clearly communicating truth. And here he says, but if you're communicating the message of God, the truth to one another, speaking the truth and love that builds up the church, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, this has huge implications. Because it's God's word that lays open the hearts, isn't it? It's before God's word that Hebrews 4, 11 and 12 says that we're laid bare 
It's the word of God that builds his church. He's not saying it's just our word, it's, it's words that matter. We don't need to have actions that accompany him. No, because the word of God is to change us, is to transform us. So that's not what he's saying here. But he's saying, understand and think through. How can God be most glorified by building up the church? Not for evil and pride and selfishness and promoting myself and my own agenda like they were doing with tongues, but thinking of others better than ourselves and building up the church. And he has made that very clear that prophecy, speaking God's word clearly, is designed to further the work of building people to faith, including even a lost observer who would see the church doing this and on another. And he pictures this situation where there's an outsider, an unbeliever, who observes what's going on as the church assembles and they hear powerful words and exhortation, wisdom from God's Word and, and put before the mirror of God's Word, it reveals their hearts. And they say, as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, I am undone. And by the way, he's not just talking about a message coming from a pulpit. That will be one application, but he's talking about the body. He's talking about all of you speaking the truths of God's word together, building each other up. And he's brought to the recognition of his need and repentance where it says, I want that. I want what Jesus is doing in you. And God's Word shines a spotlight into their innermost souls. And by the way, the same thing is supposed to happen to us as believers, right? We're supposed to make each other want Jesus more and more, right? It's no, no different here, except we have a new nature. But it's to bring us a sense of, before God, I am unworthy. This is His grace that is offered to me. This is what I'll receive if I walk away from His grace. Judgment and it's convict us and move us and motivate us toward greater and greater likeness of Jesus Christ. And no other power is able to do that but the Word of God. And so, while it's good to invite people to hear one person speak the Word of God, the idea here is that it's as they see this really changing us and us all wanting to proclaim the message and truth of the Word of God to one another as we go through the circumstances of life and we need to be reminded of His truth and promises, that is engaging to one who is searching. And it has a powerful witness to the truth and the reality and authenticity of Christ in us. So that they say, they fall on their face, and they say, God is in you of a truth. And what you might not know here is that phrase where Paul says the result could be. He doesn't say this result always happens, but this is where this could lead. The result of an unbeliever saying to, to the believer, testifying that God is in you of a truth. He's quoting from Isaiah 45, 14. He's quoted from Zechariah 8.23 where God speaks through the prophet and He says, the Egyptians are going to come over to you and He pictures the last days. He says, they're going to worship before you and they're going to say, surely God is with you. So what He's saying is this. His argument against the use of tongues that are not interpreted because they don't clearly say the message, the truth of God's word, which is the ultimate thing. 
here. He says it's important to be clear in God's truth, intelligible, because that builds up God's people, and it can also lead to the conversion of others. He's saying this, that we exist to represent God's presence through changed lives by the clear understanding and applying of the Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit that lays hearts bare. Not just through the preaching. I want, we've got to drill this in our heads. It's not just through the Sunday morning preaching. That could be like the air war that drops the bombs and stirs things up, right? That could be like poking the hornet's nest, okay? Because it's more directed. But it's also through the body doing this to one another. That's how the church is built up. Many different forms. Messages, texts, calls, etc. here. We exist to represent God's presence through changed lives so that when the Egyptians come and they see a people who say Jesus is our king, that they say he is their king. The king's words are their words. They are ambassadors, representatives of the king. This is real. This really changes. And it's not just when they get together, they take this back to their homes and they live this out and they practice this out. And Paul says, what was true and prophesied of Israel in the future? We can have a shade of this today within God's people. Jesus builds His church by His Word. The sword of the Spirit lays hearts bare. It changes people to love and good works. And that's the main thing. And when we put anything else above that, we gunk up the wheels, we cut the hamstrings of the churches, and the church stagnates. And God wants His church to unleash His truth to change people into the true image of God in Christ. And everything we do needs to be examined in light of that. And 1 Corinthians is making it very clear that changed lives that encounter the presence of God and His Word through His people is why we have a church. We're not to be a cruise ship. Right? Cruise ship, you go to be entertained and have everything you want, right? And it floats through the sea and it goes to the ports of call, etc. Right? That's nice. That's comfortable. Cruise ship is in heaven. We're a battleship. Okay? We have not entered our heavenly rest yet. We're at war here. We're, we're, we're not to be on a cruise ship just to make us comfortable here. We're to be a, a state-of-the-art battleship that is equipped to do warfare, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to care for the brokenhearted, and the casualties that the enemy has wounded through the clear message of the whole counsel of God's Word, which is this. The promises by God, made in the Old Testament, had been fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ and the Messiah of His promised Redeemer. And Jesus was anointed by God, set out by God at His baptism as Messiah. He began His ministry in Galilee after His baptism, doing good, performing mighty works by the power of God, proving He was the Messiah. And then the Messiah was crucified according to the purposes of God at the hands of men. He was raised from the dead and appeared to His disciples. He was exalted by God and given the name Lord. He gave the Holy Spirit to form the new community of God, His church. And He will come again for judgment and then to set up His kingdom eventually for all time. And all who hear this message should repent and follow up with their confession of their faith and baptism. Be part of Jesus' church. That's the story that's spelled out over the Scriptures. And that's why we exist. To be able to tell the people that of a truth, God is among us. Let's pray.